Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. I'm your host, James. And I'm your other host, Charlie. Do you ever read about science in the news and think, there's got to be more to this story that they're just not getting? Well, James and I started this podcast because we always have that problem when we're reading science news, and we thought that you guys deserve better. You should learn more of what's actually going on out there. So we dive into the actual research papers that are spurring these headlines, and we open up the work behind these beautiful new discoveries and hopefully cut through the misinformation that's out there in science media. Well, Charlie, I'm excited about today's episode. You've probably seen a lot of headlines about this story popping up about supernovae. Supernovae? Yeah, supernovae. (laughs) About supernovae blowing up and potentially causing humans to walk upright millions of years ago. I actually did see this in the news, and I've got a bone to pick with you, James, because I was going to do an episode about this. You're stealing my thunder, no pun intended. (laughs) Well... It's funny you bring up thunder because it sounds like you may have actually read about this paper. There's a lot of talk about lightning, but this is super, this is a really interesting read and excited to dive into it for this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to hear about it. Um, for those of you who are listening for the first time, Charlie and I are both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. This podcast is our way of sharing our love that we've developed in grad school for reading papers with anyone else who wants to learn more about these cool new discoveries. We are the paper boys. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We really, really appreciate it. And if you haven't already, please check us out on our social media. We have Twitter and Instagram. We are quite active. Uh, Our handle is at PaperboysPod. And actually, if you have already been following us on Twitter, you probably already have seen this story before. So it's a great way to maybe get some little morsels of science news that could be on an upcoming episode uh, or otherwise get you know, other science news that's not on an episode. So it's just a a cool little supplementary source for the show. Again, check that out. It's at paperboyspod on Twitter and Instagram. And James, I believe we have a long dead segment that's coming back on this show, right? That is correct, Charlie. It's been a while since we've had a grad student for our grad student highlight, but we're very excited this week to bring on Megan Jandarana, who is currently a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. She's looking at robotics and particularly what i think is really interesting how to design systems with swarms of drones whether they're aerial drones or ground robots to help scientists and principal investigators use these tools more efficiently she's done lots of cool work with nasa and is actually going to be going back there to work uh, once she graduates so if you're interested definitely take a listen megan's work is super cool and i was really excited to have the opportunity to talk to her Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to hear that interview. And stay tuned to the very, very end of the show if you're interested in hearing about Megan's work. So, James, you brought up supernovae. All right, we got to decide how we're going to pronounce this, by the way. Super, supernovae? Supernovae. Let's go with that. Okay, supernovae. Plural of supernova. Is a, is uh, and <laughs> what were you going to say? I was going to say the Dan Carlin quote again, but I've already said that like eight times. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's no right way to incorrectly pronounce science terms or something. Uh, no, and you said it has some relation to humans walking upright. 
and it also has relation to lightning and it's just it sounds kind of like a crazy big connection so you're gonna have to start somewhere but go all right ahead. so yeah the topics of this paper could touch on like so many different things and i think that's one of the reasons why it blew up in the popular media just to give you an idea here are some of the headlines that i found in popular science news i mean there are dozens so these are just three earthsky.org said did supernovae blasts prompt humans to walk upright question mark <laughs> popsci.com says a bizarre new theory connects supernovae explosions with humans ability to walk upright subheading we're going to need some more evidence oh wow and already CN- calling out this paper yep cnn pulling up on the anchor exploding stars may have motivated human ancestors to walk not okay man i don't i don't feel like i really understand this any better after hearing those headlines no it also no. it also sounds like this is very multidisciplinary it sounds like it, this would be a lot of different fields is there like a huge author list on this paper no so that's one of the funny things um there are two authors both who are in departments of physics and astronomy we have Wait, adrian what? sorry that's <laughs> yeah. just surprising to me i would have thought there'd be like oh it's anthropology and it's climatology and astronomy and you'd expect it to be like yeah this huge list of people from like 10 different institutions those are like normally the papers that we see that have this type of broad sweeping topic right yeah i mean we've had papers where all they did was play music for mosquitoes with more authors than that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so these are uh the two authors are adrian mellet sorry if i'm pronouncing that wrong he is a professor at the department of physics and astronomy like i mentioned at university of kansas and brian thomas who's in the department of physics and astronomy like i mentioned at university or washburn university also in Kansas. Okay. And these two researchers, just from searching around, they have a long history of doing what's called space weather research. So studying these uh, physical processes of like how radiation in the atmosphere that comes from the sun or from exploding stars interacts with the planet. Yeah. And the space weather is like a huge, huge field, right? I mean, that's like a huge chunk of what NASA does is space weather research. Yeah. It's like one of those things that's sort of underappreciated in you know common everyday life if you're not associated with it at all but it affects everything like communications gps satellites you know if the space weather turns because of a solar event our entire power grid is wiped out so yeah i feel like i see some sort of fear-mongering like headline or or reddit comment or something like every other month about how <laughs> we're so we're so vulnerable to a solar storm or something like that I mean, yeah, there's also like this, you know, very, very small probability chance that a supernova blowing up far away could just wipe off all the life on Earth. It's like a once every billion year kind of chance sort of thing. But like, it's not good to sleep over it. That makes me feel great, James. Yep. I could have lived I could have lived happily without ever knowing that. But (laughs) just (laughs) the lack of sleep will kill you faster than the (laughs) radiation yeah wait so what is this paper actually called so this is actually very fitting for paper boys since all of our episode titles end in a question mark but uh the title of this paper is from cosmic explosions to terrestrial fires question question mark (laughs) yep i'm ron burgundy (laughs) (laughs) and this this was published in the journal of geology but they've posted a copy to archive for anyone who's interested in accessing the paper. Okay, so it's, uh, let me get this straight. It's a study by two 
space weather scientists about Earth weather influencing human anthropology published in a geology journal? I mean, technically, yes, you can say that. But <laughs> when we're going to dive into this paper and I'm going to show you, it's like this paper is not about how space weather influences humans walking upright. Like there's literally one line in the paper that's like, it's more than a line. Maybe it's a paragraph that says like, you know, maybe this led to humans walking because it actually coincides when we talk about the time scale of events, like it coincides really well with the appearance of upright walking species. I see. And okay, so this is maybe an example of the, the news outlets running with that line. Yeah, I think it's way more the case that, you know, sort of this la this small section of their paper went viral. And truthfully, I mean, reading it, they were very upfront about it. You know, it's a little bit from left field, but like they don't make any like unsubstantiated claims and the claims that they do make when that are kind of like out there, they're like, you know, this is an idea. Not many people really know. So, you know, this is a potential and it's worth looking into more. Okay. This is a potential, potentially interesting topic and it's worth looking into more. Okay. Well, I will admit I bit the clickbait pretty hard. I was so excited to learn about the humans walking part. Oh, dude, same. I mean, because the way that all of the news headlines are phrased, they make you think that like someone has found this interesting like anthropological case of, you know, cosmic radiation causing a mutation in the brain <laughs> to like make someone yeah or up. like yeah or like they had some sort of like you know fossil record correlation and you know it was all like really interlinking these things but it sounds more like an element of their kind of like literature review you know like you've written papers before there's always like in your introduction or your conclusion like you know and this may even have a link to the you know the whatever this ionization effect but it's just because you read like one paper about it yeah yeah i mean if you look at these authors' academic record, you have to trust that they are very experienced and they know what they're doing, yeah, um, yeah. at least when it comes to the hard science. And so, I mean, basically, just to walk you through like a quick intro timeline of, or not timeline, an intro sort of outline of what they did, it's like they did a model of the supernovae that were blowing up, which we have some good evidence for. They looked at what would this radiation do in Earth's atmosphere in terms of ionization of atmospheric particles and, you know, for the, the general energy levels that they would expect for these radiation particles coming away from a star and what could the effects be on Earth as a whole? Okay, so it's, so it's really more a study of like a historical supernova that happened? Yeah, and actually multiple supernovas, supernovae. So almost 15 to 20 supernovae that occurred in this period of time from about 1.5 to 8 million years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's a long span of time, but that's also a lot of supernovae. <laughs> a lot of supernovae, long span of time. Reading this paper, like my sense of time got totally thrown off because they're like, oh, yeah, all these stars that are so close and only 300 light years away. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, but, oh, yeah, it's so close. That actually is so close. It's insane. Yeah. It makes, uh, what is it? What's the star that's closest to us, like four light years away? Uh, Sagittarius? No, Sagittarius is at the center of the galaxy. Is it? Am I wrong on both of those things? Uh, Sagittarius is, is close. Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri. Yeah. So back on track here. <laughs> how, did they, how do they actually know that these supernovae happened? Good question. So there have been several studies the last few years that looked at deposits of iron 60 which is 
a radioactive isotope of iron. They were looking at these deposits in cores from the seafloor, and what they found was just like huge amounts of iron 60 that date back to around like this time period of one to eight million years ago in concentrations that were like 10 to 40 times higher than what we would expect to see naturally from naturally occurring processes on earth wow okay i ha- i have a lot of questions so they, they found these in the seafloor is there a reason they had to do that um so this is actually a different study this is a study from like 2016 i think from berlin where they were sort of just identifying the fact that earth in the past has been bombarded by these galactic cosmic rays or gcrs as they call them um from these stars blowing up in the nearby vicinity and a further Wait, indication are gcrs comprised of i thought that those were radiation of some sort are you you're saying that those are like particles of iron 60 uh yeah so gcrs are comprised of like gamma radiation which is like photons alpha radiation which is like helium nuclei oh okay um but then you can also get these they're like heavy nuclei so like iron um is one of those and they're sort of like just these heavy particles that have been blown up and so they're traveling like radiation but they're like the nuclei of these heavy so this is like what neil degrasse tyson means when he says how like we're you know you're made of the stuff of exploding stars it's like the earth being bombarded (laughs) with like these elements that are only fused in like a supernova or something yeah no absolutely and so you can actually you find them in the deposits and these observations of the seafloor cores correspond with what's known as the local bubble or local cavity um, which is it's this cloud of like highly heated plasma that we're in in our galaxy it measures like 600 by 600 by 1200 light years across and they what? think that this formed from the series of supernovae exploding. Oh, okay. So we are like, so this is not normal to have this many supernovae in such a local area in such a short amount of time. Like it's noticeable to us. Like we see the remnants of these and we don't really see it elsewhere. I think it's like, it's a high density of supernovae. I don't think, I don't know if, I can't really say if it's like not normal. Like maybe it occurs pretty often, but it, it's not like homogenous throughout the universe. So yeah, 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 yeah. If that makes sense. So yeah, the, that makes they'd sense. Ob- they'd observe this and I don't know exactly how they calculated it, but the time period for all this to occur, you could basically trace it to like, you know, this time period of two to eight million years ago. Okay. Which is, I mean, that's nothing on the stars living and dying life scale. No, it's like, it's nothing. But apparently, you know, we could get these supernovae exploding in the near vicinity almost like every million years and near vicinity being like 300 light years or less i mean that like when you hear about how powerful a supernova is which i don't know any of the numbers off the top of my head but you just always hear like the kind of little factoids like the neil degrasse tyson type stuff and then you think you know 300 light years like that's you know stars that we see in our night sky like very easily Imagine one of those exploding, yeah. how, I mean, that would probably like light up the night sky, you know, it would these be like would be, brighter than the moon. Like, yeah, they said these stars, these supernovae would be brighter than the moon and visible for ones that were this close. Like there's the Crab Nebula, which is documented, you know, in ancient Chinese texts 
that was like a thousand years ago. Oh, yeah. That actually like exploded a thousand years ago, right? Yeah. 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 And how far away is that one? That's a good question. The Crab Nebula is... That one is 6,500 light years away. Yeah. So that's far. And I mean, yeah. they said they could see that during the day. Oh, my gosh. 1,054. Okay. So, um, all right. So getting an idea of how crazy it would be for this to happen so close to us. Yeah. And so the the 300 light year limit is sort of like that's how far the star would have to be or how close I should say for us to really be able to measure notice a measurable effect of galactic cosmic radiation coming in. I see. So we don't we don't really observe like in these cores any significant deposit of iron 60 from the crab nebula exploding a thousand years ago. I don't think so. I don't okay. think so. Okay, that's a good reference point. So aside from it being like a spectacular and probably really terrifying <laughs> experience for anything living on Earth at the time, what is what else is the effect on both life here or the weather, since it sounds like they're talking about space weather here? Yeah, so you get these charged particles coming in, and you can imagine sort of this billiard ball analogy where the radiation's coming in, some of it's like protons, some of it's maybe these heavy ions, and they hit particles in the atmosphere and knock off electrons or maybe they hit the nucleus of an atom that's in the atmosphere and then you get a cascading effect because then that bounces and hits another nucleus you get sort of this cascading effect i'm very familiar with this this is called a townsend avalanche townsend avalanche well at least it's called a townsend avalanche in experimental plasma physics but it's like that's like how that's like the easiest way to produce a plasma in the lab is like you generate an electric field in a very low vacuum and once like an electron in that field gets enough energy, it'll hit a particle, knock an electron loose, which also has enough energy to knock another one loose. And it's, it cascades and like very quickly ionizes the gas. Okay. Yeah. So also known as passion breakdown. Passion breakdown. Yeah. This is just, so it's my, my area of non-expertise, you could say. <laughs> so <laughs> what you're working on, what yeah. you're working on. Yeah. So this happens and you know, it's interesting because this sounds very like scientific, like you don't hear about it in the lab, but like every time you get into an airplane, this creates a cascade effect of radiation. So like this is why you get more radiation when you fly. Sorry, why? Because you're closer to the galactic radiation? Galactic cosmic radiation coming into the atmosphere, it actually increases the amount of radiation and like ionization in the atmosphere as it enters and as the atmosphere gets thicker to a point and then it attenuates. Oh, I see. So at the area, so you're saying that this happens somewhere in the upper atmosphere, but this kind of radiation can't really penetrate all the way to the ground because then the air is too thick. Normally, normally. Normally, okay. Unless you have these extremely highly energized particles from these supernovae that are pretty close by. Oh. And this is what they're modeling, the authors of this paper. So they based on their estimates for the energy levels, they think that this radiation could actually make it down to the lower altitudes. Whereas under normal conditions, like we have like today, right now in the present time, normally these radiation particles are severely attenuated. So these lower levels where we live, where weather occurs, you wouldn't notice a huge effect like at sea level. And this is important because what they're trying to say is that you get more penetration from the radiation and it increases ionization and that could lead to increased amounts of lightning okay wow so it's not <laughs> it's taking me a long time it's taking me a long time to spit that out but okay so it's not necessarily 
like dangerous for us on the ground if this happened. Like it's not like the radi the increased radiation is gonna like give you radiation poisoning or something or like give you cancer. It could. It's more that. <laughs> oh, it could. Oh, okay. I mean, if well. it's one, they don't think it would be for this case. But like that was that one in a every billion years. Oh, sure, yeah. If if there was a supernova at Alpha Centauri, then yeah, I'm sure we'd be screwed. We'd all our We're skin dead. would be melting off. But yeah. But it sounds like in this case, it's not, it's more like, you know, probably equivalent to being in an airplane or something like that kind of level of radiation, maybe. But that at the lower atmosphere is enough to have a big effect on like storms. Potentially. They hedge a lot of their statements in this paper because, and this was actually new to me. Apparently, we don't really know a lot about how lightning forms, like the the low level processes. And there's some thought that cosmic radiation could actually influence the amount of lightning like this is a active body of research and they cited a paper in here that i'm i'll be interested to read i just had a chance to look it up quickly but this group of armenian and russian researchers recently published a paper where they reported observations measuring electron avalanches that were occurring just before lightning flashes really wait how do they even measure that <laughs> maybe we shouldn't maybe i shouldn't ask because we don't want to dive into a whole nother paper but i i don't know specifically i need to i need to actually read it i, I think from just like glossing over they set up radiation detectors they, they get really low cloud levels in the area that they were doing it so i don't know they were measuring that and then they had different antennas set up for measuring the lightning okay a this sounds like an awesome area of research that i kind of want to switch to b <laughs> is that it, so it sounds like there's there is maybe some suggestion of a relation between these electron avalanches in the atmosphere and lightning, right? Yeah. And so uh, what they say specifically in the paper, these two authors, to address this is they're like, you know, this study is a smoking gun that makes this a compelling theory, which we will take as our working model. Okay. So they, it's sort of like it, it hinges on you believing both of these things to be true. One, that increased galactic cosmic radiation causes more electron avalanches and then two that more electron avalanches cause more lightning yeah yeah and for the okay. the model that they were using i mean what they found and this was like one of the big findings of the plot of it is there's like significantly higher penetration of the particles and as a result there is a significantly higher amount of ionization in the atmosphere down to one kilometer like 50 times the amount of ionization that you would expect to see in like a normal day from galactic cosmic radiations that doesn't necessarily mean 50 times more lightning. Okay, sorry. I, I, I Maybe I misunderstood that. You're saying that the amount of radiation coming from these nebulae would have caused 50 times higher ionization? 50 times increase in atmospheric ionization in the troposphere is what they say in the paper. Okay. That's a lot. I mean, I feel like, you know, imagine like the northern lights or something, but like all over the planet. <laughs> like that sounds, it almost yeah. sounds like what they're saying. It's specifically what they say in the paper is, like I was saying earlier, they say the theory... The theory of lightning initiation is not well developed, and we cannot say that a 50-fold increase in ionization will lead to a 50-fold increase in the number of lightning events. However, the potential is there for a large increase. We know. I mean, that it sounds reasonable enough. Like lightning yeah. is essentially just a cascade of electrons that then connects to the ground. So, like, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but I believe the argument, and I would certainly be looking for evidence that. When you have a lot more electrons flying around up there, you, you're going to have a higher incidence of lightning because that's what it is, you know? 
Yes. And based on like the way that the radiation would be incident upon the Earth, it would probably come down vertically. So you'd have sort of this vertical gradient of increasing ionization, which presumably help support this idea of lightning striking the Earth. Yeah. And yeah. so they, they do then try to back this up, back up this hypothesis of, you know, increased lightning with measurements in the soil. You can look at yeah, things. I was I was gonna say like what is even the significance of that? Like why do they care if there's more lightning or or do they have proof that there's that there was lightning? So yeah, they looked at two main things. One is nitrogen deposition. Like in the in the soil or Yeah. So so one is nitrogen deposition in the soil, and the other is evidence of increased wildfires within the last seven to eight million years. Oh, really? Yeah. And are, do they know that that wasn't from people flicking cigarettes out of their out of their their horseback? <laughs> you know, it's hard to say if all the horseback riders seven million years ago were just flicking their cigarettes. But yeah, it could have been the, an increased prevalence of fireworks. <laughs> well, I mean, they do specifically state that lightning is the main initiator of wildfires if one excludes humans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, sorry, just to redact. I said they were looking for increased nitrogen in the soil. What they were thinking was that this increased level of nitrogen flux due to the lightning. So normally you get nitrogen in the atmosphere that's like dinitrogen and it's really stable. If it gets hit by lightning, it starts this process of dissociation and oh. nitrogen deposition and a process called nitri- nitrate enhancement. And one of the things that they thought was that this could lead to a CO2 drawdown and a cooling of the climate such as was observed at the onset of the Pleistocene era about 7 to 8 million years ago. Okay, so the nitrogen aspect of this, that sounds crazy. I mean, do they have anything to back that up? Like, is that something that they observe in areas of the Earth where there's more lightning storms, like today? I don't know a ton about that. I mean, they really they have, like, they have one reference from one of their other papers about that. Okay. Well, then suffice it to say, these guys are experts on that. Like, they're publishing on that field, so. Yeah. And they they stress this all depends on there being a large increase in the lightning frequency, which they're unable to estimate. However, this was something that was new to me. I didn't realize that starting about 7 million years ago, there was a worldwide increase in the number of wildfires. Like, until then, there hadn't been many wildfires. Yeah, so you mentioned that, but how do they actually even know that? This, it sounds like they get evidence for it from soot and other carbon-related sediments, probably that geologists have looked up. Okay. And currently, it sounds like there's no really good explanation for why there's this increase in fire. So really, they're saying, like, here's an idea. Maybe this is a cause. Okay, so they're putting forth, like, this kind of... I mean, I want to say, like, oh, it's wild, but it actually doesn't sound that crazy at all. Like, this... like why not i don't know yeah like why not like wildfires like happen all the time and if suddenly you just see a big increase in them and no one has come up with a good explanation so far then like that suggests kind of a mystery that demands like kind of a a crazy not crazy but uh something that's a little bit out there for an explanation yeah and so this is where it finally ties into humans walking ah yes i've been waiting for this moment so human, I think the first evidence of like humanoid species walking was uh, Australopithecus. Oh yeah, I had a great uh, great 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 grandfather who was Australopithecus. <laughs> oh really, dude? That's yeah. crazy. Me too. Yeah, I'm part Australopithecus actually. 
oh man maybe that's why we're such good friends we're actually (laughs) related yeah (laughs) so that happened about seven to eight million years ago someone's gonna kill me for getting that date off by like a couple million years but (laughs) one plus minus one million years okay what's a million years among cousins you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah right can't be upset we're all related um so humans started walking upright and it's not to say that it caused the radiation caused humans to walk upright but there was a significant shift between forested areas and then the development of savannas as trees burned from these wildfires no way and so as these humanoid species developed the ability to walk maybe they would have to start walking farther between trees or start having to look for predators that are in the savanna and so, so like we evolved from like monkeys who would be like swinging around from tree to tree and probably like not really go into the ground very often. Yes. But then there's no trees left. So you got to start walking. That's crazy. So it's okay. Like, is there any, I mean, it, again, like such a cool idea, but like, again, it sounds like it kind of relies on like almost like circumstantial evidence, you know, like, do they have anything this is why I was hoping there would be more of like an anthropological or like a archaeological aspect to this. Like, do they have any sort of evidence that this is the case? Uh, sorry, that what's the case? That these primates would have left the trees and had to start walking around in savannas. Or are they just positing that? This has been brought up in other research. I, okay. I think it's, you know, coming from me, who's not very up to date on all the research for that. I think it is sort of thought to be a contributing factor for humans adapting to bipedalism. Okay. So what this paper does then is it's sort of just trying to draw the link between these two things. Like they say, we don't know why there were more wildfires. Uh, We do know why humans became bipedal, but we don't know why the trees went away, something like that. And so they're saying like, well, here's why the trees went away. Yeah, yeah. I think like, so at its core, this paper is a space weather research paper. They did space weather modeling. They looked at the flux of these energetic particles, the energy spectrum of these particles coming through the atmosphere, and what the resulting ionization could potentially be due to this. And then sort of on top of that, they sandwiched around this layer of like, okay, what might be an atmospheric effect of that? And then another sandwiched layer on top of that, sort of like a macro effect of like, okay, what would this do to, this is another word I learned in this paper, biota of the time period. Referring ah. to like the living like organisms the living things. of the time yeah. period. And then, yeah, I mean, so like literally there's a line in their paper that says, thus, it is possible that nearby supernovae played a role in the evolution of humans. Okay. So it's like, it's almost like a very well a very well-informed thought experiment or something. Yeah. And like, you know, they couch their statement and they say, this should be borne in mind as more research is done, particularly in the initiation of lightning. And like... They're not saying like this is definitively it, but it's like they didn't find any reason why it couldn't be from this initial research. So as you're looking back in time to like think about how humans evolved and how humans are part of like not only this greater ecosystem of the earth, but also the solar system, you know, keep this in mind. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I I really, really hope this is true because this sounds like the kind of thing that could easily be it's like it's very easily digestible. You know, it could easily be Mm -hmm. put into like high school science textbooks or, you know, whatever, like Neil deGrasse Tyson talks or minute physics videos, stuff that like people kind of consume like on the Internet nowadays. Like, you know, we didn't know what 
we didn't even know black holes existed, you know, 120 years ago. But now yeah. we know they're everywhere and everyone like has a pretty, you know, a layman's understanding of how they come to be and what they are, you know. And it's just one of those things that's just kind of like in popular knowledge. Yeah. And, and, and there's like lots of examples of that. And this sounds like one of those things that could easily just be like that. Be like, you know, they, didn't, they used to not really know uh, why humans eventually went. But it turns out, you know, it's the stuff of the stars, you know, and then yada, yada, go into your montage on, on Cosmo's reboot of 2050. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hosted by james of the paper boys podcast yeah i can't wait i can't wait abc if you're listening take notes i it's fox <laughs> that's all right i think you just lost the job james <laughs> <laughs> oh well oh well at least i can stick with paper boys <laughs> yeah we'll be doing it in 2050 absolutely i guess just tacking on to your comment like you know when i thought about this at first for a while i was like Oh, that's super random, like supernovae exploding. Like, how can we trace that? Like, and to think that that would really affect us here on Earth, like we're shielded from all that stuff. But, you know, how different is it from like finding out that a huge meteor struck the Earth and killed all the dinosaurs randomly? Like, yeah, exactly. And that, that shaped everything on Earth for like the last 60 million years. We wouldn't be here if it was We wasn't would not that. be here. Yeah. We would Absolutely still be not. moles living in the dirt or something. <laughs> best case scenario yeah and like you know it's not it's not crazy to think that like 15 to 20 stars blowing up seven to eight million years ago in the near vicinity of earth would have an effect like that seems very plausible and yeah uh, yeah it's just cool i i really like these uh these papers that sort of expose the greater ecosystem that we're in not just like within earth yeah it's not just on earth like there's all these external influences yeah. And, you know, I'm a sucker for anything that gives more value to space research. So I think this falls in that category. Yeah. Maybe this is just propaganda to get NASA's budget up. Ooh. So they can fake the next moon landing in 2024. Spooky space propaganda. <laughs> yeah. The worst kind. Yes. <laughs> is it? Is it the worst kind? <laughs> uh. Yeah. You, James, I can't believe you're bringing this fake news onto our podcast. <laughs> No comment. No uh, comment. And speaking of fake news and how I totally fell for the clickbait, it sounds like these articles, I don't want to say misrepresented the research, but didn't really get at the heart of what was being studied here. Am I right? If you actually go into the article, I mean, they did, they did talk about the actual paper and it was helpful because the authors gave a press release. So most of these articles, it seemed like we're able to pull some actual quotes from the authors to put it into context. Oh, okay. But like, I don't, I don't really know what it was. But when you just put like exploding stars and human ancestors walking, it's not talking about the full chain of events that the paper outlines. So you know, it's like you're taking the beginning and the end and putting it together, but you don't see the path that it takes. That's yeah, much more which logical. is so, which is like unfortunately true of so many of the papers that we bring into this show. I mean, the reason we started this show is that like I, I feel like it doesn't really um, like respect the process of science, you know. It's all it it's like it grabs onto something that just sounds the most outlandish, you know, even though like that isn't really what they were trying to say with this paper. That was like one that was like one potential idea. It was almost like that Amuamua paper that we read where they said how the evidence points to that it could be shaped similarly to like a solar sail. And then there was like a little bit at the end that was like, you know, this could be extraterrestrial in origin and then and then people just went like, 
boom, they went crazy with it and they ran with it. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, until there's evidence that says otherwise, like, you should put out these hypotheses. I mean, you know, it's, sometimes people do it just for the stunt value, just to get the, you know, the media time. But you have to keep your mind open. Yeah, and like, you can tell that that's not the case with this paper. That, that they're just trying to do it as a stunt? Yeah, no, you can you can tell that that's not the case with this. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, yeah. reading it, I thought they did a good job of like not coming up with any crazy claims. And it's like, yeah, I mean, they're in this because they enjoy it too. And usually you're into science because like you wanted to make these big discoveries. Like, yeah, don't be, I wouldn't be worried about like coming up with these claims if you're substantiating it with evidence like they did. Like put it out there and get people inspired to start churning it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, it just, man, I do worry well, actually, I shouldn't say I worry. I'd be so thrilled if any publication ever picked up any of my research. I probably <laughs> would not be upset if it was that misrepresented. But, <laughs> but you know, but you, you know, sort of think about it sometimes. Like, it would be frustrating for people to like not get your research. You know, it would be like, yeah, you know, being a being like a novelist and like you go to things and the questions you get are like, so like, where do you get your ideas? You know, <laughs> like just like the word people not really getting like what is it that you do? You know. I hear you. Yeah. And like, I think one of the big issues with the misinformation part is like, you know, we've touched on this over 40 times now with all of our different episodes, but it's like, there's a lot of nuance to all of these papers. And, you know, as people, as human beings, we wanted to try to condense it into like easily digestible news clips. And you will always lose information in doing that. Yeah. Like, always. you know, you read the, when we actually go in and read the actual paper, it's like, maybe it's six to 10 pages long. And after you start writing papers, you're like, they had to cut out so much information just to get it into that length. I know, right? There's a reason most of these, like, nature and science papers have 120 pages of supplementary figures and data. <laughs> yeah, and I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So. And that, that's kind of why I hope that this gets, ultimately, is A, proven true, and B, gets a fair shake. Because it is, like you said, it's digestible, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you for bringing in that paper. This was very, very cool. And I guess I'm going to have to try and come up with something exciting for next week since he stole my, again, my thunder, no pun intended. But maybe you'll get hit by a very highly energetic particle that will spark a new idea in your brain. I don't know, James. I think you got lightning in a bottle with this one. Ooh. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, for, thanks for listening to my explanation. It was a, it was a really interesting paper to read. Yeah. And, and uh, thanks again for bringing it in. So, if anyone is interested in checking out the paper for themselves or some of these news articles to get um, maybe a little more background info, check it out on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. We've got lots of cool stuff up there as well, like our merch, which helps to support the show, helps James and I keep doing this despite our horrendously low grad student salaries. Um, <laughs> there's my there's my begging for the, for the episode. <laughs> And definitely stay tuned for the grad student highlight where I had a chance to talk with Megan about her fascinating research. Yeah, check that out. That'll be coming up right at the end of this show. Don't forget to please uh, subscribe to us and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Share this episode with a friend. Anything that helps get the word out and spread some more science around. I think everyone could, everyone could use a little more science knowledge in their lives. So, Thanks so much for listening and please join us again next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening. All right. So thank you so much, Megan, for joining me. As I understand it, you're at Carnegie Mellon University 
studying robotics through the mechanical engineering department, and you're working on your PhD, correct? Yeah. So I've heard a little bit about your research before, but would you like to give us a little bit of an overview? Um, from what I've seen before, your work is really cool looking into different schemes for drones and how they can help people uh, achieve new science and different types of missions. Yeah, so basically what we're trying to do is kind of make the uh, UAV systems more accessible to kind of a wider audience. So, you know, these days everyone kind of has access to these, you know, quadcopters and whatnot right off the shelf. But um, in order to use these for, you know, science-related missions or even um, engineering-related problems, it becomes really difficult to tackle these complex systems. So, you know, a lot of people who want to use these vehicles may be, you know, scientists and domain experts in their particular field, but may not know anything about these vehicles and how to kind of have these vehicles collaborate together. And so what we're hoping to do is develop methods and tools to allow these non-expert roboticists, you know, tackle these large systems, basically. So um, my research, you know, you can kind of break it down and think about it as a way to not only plan um, large-scale missions, large-scale in terms of the number of vehicles, um, but also monitor these complex missions. So what we hope to do is kind of give operators the ability to um, basically um, define these missions. So, you know, how do you tell your vehicles where you want them to go and what you want them to do? And that's kind of the work that I started off doing in the AI um, with the natural language interfaces and allowing operators to define flight paths, basically, right? Um, but then after you define the flight path, how do you actually get the vehicles um, out in the environment and, you know, tell them what to do and, um, you know, decide how many you even need. Right. So yeah. Yeah. what we're developing is these planning tool aids to allow people to think about these really complicated problems that they're working on and kind of give them strategies for more effectively designing these missions so that they can decide, you know, ahead of time, maybe I need 50 vehicles for this mission, or maybe I need, you know, 20 for this other mission. And it allows them to do this more efficiently, basically. And then you can use these same strategies for allowing operators to understand what's going on real time in these missions. So once they've determined, you know, like I need 50 vehicles to handle these missions, how do you monitor these missions so that these non-expert operators kind of know like, hey, something is going, you know, poorly. Maybe we should rethink the problem real time and kind of adapt if we need to, or, or call off the mission or whatever we need to do. Right. So how, how can we allow these, you know, operators who may not understand really what's happening on the vehicles to kind of figure out, you know, is something going poorly or not kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's really interesting because it seems like right now to really operate drones, you need to basically have the knowledge of a drone operator like you need right. to know about battery life like how do the motors work how do you fly it and if not you need to have a really good friend who knows that um, exactly yeah so, so the kind of idea is like 
how do you kind of create a system in a way that these operators don't really have to think about those like low level issues, right? Like we don't care about necessarily like what it takes to fly a drone or like how hard it is to like get the dynamics to work properly. We just care that we need to do, you know, these tasks out in the environment. So like, how do we determine what fundamentally is actually needed, right? Rather than like caring about, in addition to that, you know, the dynamics of the vehicles and the the hard things like, you know, the cost of the battery or whatever, right? So we're yeah. trying to help these operators make those decisions without understanding that, basically. And so you mentioned the AI, uh, for people who aren't familiar, that's the autonomy incubator at NASA Langley Research Center, and you actually had the chance to work as like a visiting researcher there for a period of time, correct? Um, I so I did multiple internships with them um, across different summers, um, and now that group has been created in or has been turned into a permanent branch at Langley. So okay. as part of that branch. Um, I actually got hired as a Pathways intern, um, which is kind of cool. So um, I guess the Pathways intern program is basically like a co-op program. So you get hired as a student and, um, you know, you spend some time at Langley and you spend some time at school. And um, when you graduate, the hope is that they convert you into a regular full-time position at the center. That's a great opportunity. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been It's been cool. I mean, I kind of... Um, basically was doing that on a summer basis anyway, but this is kind of like a more permanent way to do that. So I can go back at any time if I wanted to now, which is really nice. Wow. And I mean, that's such a cool application for the use of this work for actually using drones for scientific missions. Um, can you talk at all about any of the applications that you've been looking at, like the specific science missions or experiments that you've done with them? Sure. So, uh, one of the, uh, missions that um, I think is really interesting and that we kind of talk about a lot in within the the group at Langley is thinking about collecting atmospheric science data um, out in the environment. So a lot of times what they do to collect this atmospheric science um, data, like ozone data, for example, is they, mm -hmm. you know, send uh, these balloons up into the atmosphere and you get the data that you get. You don't really have a lot of control over where the balloon goes and, you know, how long it stays up there. Or you kind of have these manned aircrafts that, you know, circle around and, like, try and take some measurements, you know. Um, super expensive, too. And, and they're super support expensive. That. Exactly. So um, these UAV platforms are kind of um, a cheaper alternative, right? So in a manned um, aircraft, you know, you're paying for all the costs of the pilot and whatnot, but you're able to get this data, like, at different, you know, heights in the environment at different time periods, right? But you can do that autonomously with UAVs. You can stick a sensor on a UAV and you can send it up and do whatever flight pattern you want. And it's possible because they're much smaller to be able to do this in environments that we wouldn't be able to do this before. So think about, um, you know, even in Virginia where Langley is, there's like this um, – area between Norfolk and Hampton where this uh, where the center is that's um that you have to cross a tunnel um through the ocean right um yeah. and you can't send a manned aircraft over that area because it's too close to where people live right but you can send a UAV over that area and so you're able to get this data that you wouldn't normally get basically and so we're trying to enable scientists 
to, you know, plan these missions and run these missions in environments that they wouldn't necessarily be able to do. Wow. And that, and that must be totally extensible to, to like planetary exploration where there's right. no chance of sending at least right. within our lifetime, probably like a manned airplane to Mars right. or so, something like that. So these applications, yeah, these applications, we're talking about UAVs, right? But like these applications extend to any robotic system, right? Any autonomous yep. agent. So if you want to do this with rovers on the moon, you could do that too, right? Ground-based, underwater, totally. probably anything like that, it's right? It's all the same, right? I mean, the, the dynamics and the robotics part of it is very different and challenging in different ways. But what we're talking about in terms of mission planning and monitoring at the end of the day comes out to be kind of the same task for the operator, right? The operator doesn't care about the dynamics. They just care about getting the mission done. That's awesome. Um, well, so... I mean, it's so cool that you've been able to dive in and tackle this aspect that of using robotic platforms for science missions, which is obviously essential as we get into like new extreme environments and as these autonomous vehicles evolve and develop new capabilities. But just from a personal perspective, I'm curious, like, how did you get interested in this? How did you decide to get your PhD and pursue this? Um, okay, so... I guess um, the way that I got interested in in robotics um, was actually um, a long time ago when I was in high school. Um, I think I was a freshman in high school, and I went to I was part of this engineering um, class in high school, and we took a trip to a local university. And at that university, um, Honda was there, and they oh. had a humanoid robot um, called Osimo on demo. And so, like, we were in the audience and we got to see the robot and, like, kind of interact with the robot. And that's kind of, you know, what got me really excited about robotics. And so when I went to college, I was like, I want to do that. I want to make one of those, basically. And so I, like, tried to find a major that would get me there, basically. Um, so I chose mechanical engineering at the time. And um, eventually I got into grad school and um, – Working in the autonomy incubator is what made me realize what part of robotics I actually wanted to work in and what was interesting to me. So turns out that like, yeah, building these robots is really cool and really challenging. But what I'm really interested in is this interaction part of it and and the ability for humans to like kind of, you know, provide information to these, you know, basically programmed agents. Right. And be able yeah. to get and like interpret that right going both ways um so yeah i would say working in the autonomy incubator is what made me really figure out what about robotics was actually interesting to me because um you know there's like lots of different parts right like you can you can program the robots you can um build them you can you know develop um sensors for them right there's like many many things that go into robotics as a whole so yeah um, i mean one of our former grad student highlight um, students was E.L. Mazaris, who yeah. worked with. Yeah. And it's, it was it. so cool to see just the different levels in which you can engage with robots and drones, like from user yeah. interface perspective, from a language perspective. Yeah. Um, it's super cool to see. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's neat. It's neat to see the integration of all those things from like, the hardware level, like I only work with hardware, but right. to see where it goes, it's obviously really important. Um, I guess my last question is, 
the technology and research you've been talking about is super cool. I'm just curious, like, what are you most excited about with this research to see in like five to 10 years? Like, what's your dream for your research? My dream for my research? Like seeing it deployed on Mars or like, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I think in if we're just talking about the next five to 10 years, I think you know, we're talking about these missions where we have, you know, a bunch of these autonomous agents working together. Um, and what I didn't talk about is um, the actual difficulties required to have all of these agents work together. So we talk about swarm systems, right, where we, you know, kind of think about like a bee swarm or like a flock of birds, right? But really a lot of the work has been done um, in simulation and we don't have okay. real... Um, truly working swarm platforms on, you know, live agents. So I think that there's a lot of things in the next five to 10 years that will happen so that we can actually have these fully functioning swarm systems, right? Like there are things like communication that we need to tackle, just like the design of the agents and the behaviors of the agents. These are all things that are active research areas. And I think that eventually we'll, we'll actually be able to, have these real life systems so that we can, you know, explore more in these areas and these applications basically. Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen some cool videos like from university of Pennsylvania that have the, yep. the quadcopters playing like golden eye from James Bond, but yeah, but behind all that is a ton of real scripting good. and, uh, not not to take anything away from what they yeah so they they have a lot of behaviors um, that they've developed and but they do this in a very controlled environment right so there's a lot of really cool research that goes into those videos and is really difficult but still we do this in very controlled ways right what yeah. happens in life if you send these agents out into like a real field you know and and there's wind right like what do you do <laughs> right so these are hard problems that i think have yet to be tackled well cool um thank you so much for talking about your research uh it's really fascinating hopefully the listeners will find it equally interesting i'm sure they will um so just want to say thank you again it was really nice to have you on yeah it was my pleasure thanks for inviting me it was a lot of fun absolutely